Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac, Broken Bridge in Latin, for those that don't know where I'm from, in uh, York, England. Another uh, Englishman today, Phil M. Jones. Phil, Master of Influence and Persuasion, the author of the best-selling Exactly book series, which, of course, has sold over a million copies across the globe. He's the producer of the most listened to nonfiction audiobook of all time. Yeah. And he's a trusted advisor for some of the world's biggest brands. He's been an entrepreneur since the ripe old age of 14. Phil's precise insights around communication added to a proven personal pedigree of peak performance and a richness of real world experience means that Phil is a kind of thought leader whose counsel is sought by... Yeah, other thought leaders and executives, kind of like me. That's why we're here today, Phil. His early career was dynamic and challenging, including leading experienced teams of sales professionals through his early 20s, as well as guiding Premier League football clubs. Yep, I support Man United, Phil. Heads up. To maximize sponsorships <laughs> and licensing agreements, in addition to helping grow an independent real estate business to a revenues in excess of over $240 million with a sales team of how many? Just Five. Exactly. He went solo in 2008 because he's awesome. And ever since, more than 800 different industries across 59 countries and five, not six, Phil, but five continents have benefited from his input to understand how their critical conversations and the success language required can maximize their effectiveness. I've always wanted to talk to Phil. He's such an amazing cat. I want to start first, Phil, with your mission because mm-hmm. I find it rather brilliant. So I'll read it out and then let's let's start our natter, if you will, from there. Your mission is as follows. To help great people get better. Because a relentless focus on getting better means that better soon beats the current best. Welcome to the show. Can you expand on that? What does that actually mean? Oh, what does it mean is, is I met people that have got variety levels of experience, variety of levels of brilliance. And often what gets talked about in organizations is this idea of the fact we need to bottle best practice. (laughs) And what I've learned in all of the different environments that I've worked in is that, that this idea that there is a best practice is actually something that suppresses performance. Mm. What it does is it creates a a barrier to growth that says you cannot go through that best practice. And in any given environment that I've ever found myself in is, is it's interesting to me that when people focus on just getting better at something over a period of time, they then find themselves in a situation that what they're now doing is way past what once upon a time they were calling was a best practice. So this relentless quest for better means that I'm very happy playing an infinite game of a job that is never finished. And that's where the joy comes from, from a mission point of view. is like I will die on this mission of saying we're trying to make stuff better. We're trying to make stuff better. We're trying to make stuff better. And, and I think that's one of the ways that I've learned to enjoy a career that I've now been in for a sustained period of time, yet still relatively young in the sort of thought leader, expert type space and can still be excited about 30 years of career ahead of me. I always thought that if I found myself in this kind of work, it would be like when I was old and gray or without hair, right? Is it would come at that stage of career. But I found myself in advisory expert consulting positions in my late 20s, which was really exciting at the time until I found myself in my mid 30s and said, well, now what do I do for the rest of my career? Mm -hmm. So the mission was more of a 
a humbling realization of how do I sustain excitement in doing this level of work with a long enough runway to say I'll never get bored. Well, it doesn't sound like you're bored because you get to work with so many different brands, different industries. And, you know, at its core, obviously, your work centers on uh, persuasion and influence. So I I do want to dig into that a bit and actually tackle uh, a bit about how that plays out inside the organization. But let's why don't we level set first? So when when we talk about when you talk about when you work with organizations about the importance of persuasion and influence, how do you define it and how do you demarcate you know the two terms? Um, I mean, I, persuasion and influence often find themselves steering into that area of manipulation. Mm. So when I'm looking to demarcate, I think what is perhaps more important is is to look at the difference between influence and manipulation. And I think the difference between those two things is integrity. Is, Is did you believe that following your influence, the outcome would be better for that other person in a sustained fashion? Or were you looking to manipulate a scenario to create a short term better outcome for you? Mm. So, so influence for me is done with the other person's best interests at heart. That means that you can wake up at some point in time in the future, whether that's tomorrow, next month, next year, et cetera, still with the same confidence and reassurance that that was the right action for them and you. Mm-hmm. Persuasion is a series of skills that allows you to influence. So persuasion is is what you do. And to be more persuasive, you require more skills in order to influence. So influence is what we do. Persuade is how we do it. Got it. Okay. You also, um, I don't want to lose it because it's certainly not a throwaway comment. You brought in integrity. And where I want to ask you a bit about that is there's potentially a fine line, right? Between integrity of how we act, what we say, what we know to be the truth and perhaps, you know, those uh, persuasion or influence tactics that are maybe embellishment moments <laughs> or, you know, the white fibs of persuading and or trying to uh, lure someone into an idea of yours. So how important is integrity? How do you unpack that particular point with with your work? I think it was Peter Parker, or Uncle Ben, that first said it, right? That with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that is true with the ability to influence and persuade you can use it for good you can use it for evil and that's on you i find it fascinating with a book like exactly what to say we've sold 1.7 million plus copies it means i've got a lot of reviews online right i i got a lot of five star reviews i also have a lot of one star reviews and by a lot not enough to move me past a 4.5 overall general rating <laughs> but enough that means that if i want to take myself to a dark place i can pour myself a whiskey read my one star reviews and question life right like that can happen but what i've learned to understand is the majority of people who are delivering a one star review for a book that helps people have more confidence in conversation to persuade and influence is actually the mindset of that individual was entirely focused on either somebody who had them do something they didn't want to do that they went on to be able to regret, or the feeling that the only reason somebody would utilize words to influence is because they were looking to manipulate. Mm. So I, I think what I mean by integrity is particularly when looking at leadership and the reality is that we're all leading something. And if you're going to persuade an influence, then you'd best take down responsibility for the fact that you are leading is, is the result 
and perhaps the result of the result of the result of the result going to result in improved circumstances over a sustained period of time. That's what I mean by integrity. Do you believe in that moment without question that the action you're inviting somebody to take will genuinely be worth it and still worth it in the future? Hmm. And does that mean you're going to get it right all the time? Uh, No, I think you have to leave some space to the fact that you might mess it up. You might have a set of beliefs that says this was well-intended and also well-informed, the thing I influenced and persuaded somebody to do. And that could be, for example, that you think it's right for somebody in your organization to take a big leap of faith, to dive towards a promotion, to take on board more responsibility, to step to another part of the country, to be able to take on board that responsibility. You believe with full integrity is the right thing for them to be able to go and do. And then you find out 18 months later that they failed in that role and having relationship difficulties as a result of the strain that was put on their family circumstances with a geographic move. Should you still be able to feel okay about that? Mm. Maybe. Maybe, because you're only influencing the decision. You cannot influence all of the actions that follow the decision on the other person. That's what I mean by integrity, is to understand just how much you can influence. And sometimes it isn't all of it. In that scenario, you can influence in somebody's decision to be brave and courageous to step up in their career. You can't influence their ability to be successful. Yeah. In that role past fact, you can't influence how they go on to be able to communicate with their spouse past that fact. And you cannot influence all the other micro moments that happen in between. That's what I mean by integrity is, is be responsible for your part in the story. And the parts in the future story that maybe aren't your responsibility. Hey, Phil, when, when a leader or organizations purport to Uh, their employees, we want you to bring your best selves to work or your most authentic self to work. (laughs) How how does authenticity of oneself come up against, you know, the organizational uh, dogmas and the unknown knowns, right, that are how we always do it around here, which can come up against some of the vitriol or the impediments to your mm-hmm. career success, to your geographical location, uh, new role success, and so forth. I, I think we find ourselves guilty of slipping into buzzwords or looking to try and create a level of efficiency in how we're communicating a message to our teams as leaders and organizations. So when we say things like, I'm looking for you to bring your best self or your most authentic self, the risk is there the the person that is saying that and the person that is hearing that see and hear two entirely different things. Yeah, right. So there actually becomes a disconnect in communications in that. Like if you were to ask me to bring my best self, which best self would you like me to bring? Do you want me to bring <laughs> the best husband version of self? Do you want me to bring the best father version of self? Do you want me to bring the best speaker consultant version of self? The most hardworking version of self? We are all multifaceted in terms of how we show up. And I think this is where people get confused when we talk about things like authentic, authentic, because authenticity is multifaceted. We're not all things at all times to all people. People sometimes interpret being authentic as is okay to behave like a arsehole. Like <laughs> that isn't necessarily the version of self that somebody was looking to be able to show up. What it translates to be if you're looking to be more efficient with your language and effective with your language is 
to not use lazy expressions like best self and authentic self. It's to add more precision to your language so that you can influence with integrity because you knew the part that you were responsible for. So instead of saying that I'm looking for you to bring your best self to your work days, is I'm looking for you to bring the version of yourself that is most likely to achieve the outcomes that we've all agreed is worthwhile. Mm, lovely. That version of self, that's the one I want to show up. The one that okay. is most likely to help us achieve X. Bring that version to work tomorrow. Can you do that? Yeah, I can bring that version to work. Like, is I'm not looking for you to bring your most authentic self. Is I'm looking for you to show up as the version of you that is okay to speak their mind, that is prepared to be able to answer back when you don't believe fully in the plan or the initiative, that is happy to be able to challenge the status quo, that is prepared to be able to understand that it has to be messy before it's beautiful. I'm looking for you to bring that version of yourself to the conversation. So often the way you can show up with more integrity is to add specificity. No lazy language. Hmm. Same as with salespeople is please don't show up to a conversation where you're just checking in, circling back, following up or touching base. It's lazy language. <laughs> checking in and following up. I love it. Those are such, you know, you see that in emails all the time, don't you? Uh, just no. checking in, just following up. So I can have more influence and be more persuasive when I increase specificity and my integrity gap is easier to control when I'm more specific with what I'm asking of somebody. So mm. I can persuade somebody to go take a career because I believe it provides the platform for them to go on and achieve some of the goals that they've said that's important. I can persuade them and influence them to do that with the integrity to say that I know that this will be challenging and for you to succeed, you're going to have to put yourself in situations that are going to test you. And are you prepared to be able to put yourself to test? Because if you fail at the test, then you don't land back here. You might land without a job. Mm -hmm. That's influencing with integrity is allowing somebody to understand the cons as well as the pros of doing something. Gotcha. Okay. Speaking of specificity, why don't we uh, stroll into the organization for a second here and meander down some of the corridors and ask you a few questions related to personalities, business units, culture, et cetera. Yep. I want to start first, of course, because you have such a uh, proficiency in the sales profession. So we're going to we're going to enter, you know, the sales and the you know chief revenue officers domain for a second here. And so. Uh, not to your degree, but I've been privileged to work with many different sales teams as well. And and I find that uh, there's there's a weird kind of dichotomy stigma where sales teams and the industry writ large at times are often thought of as, you know, maniacs and in it for themselves, self-serving, et cetera. Yeah. Yet, in fact, they're kind of one of the most generous domains and people organisms out there. And so what I'm getting at here is how does image or perceived image inside an organization, oh, that's a sales team. They're a bunch of, you know, know-it-alls that go on their own and they're a bunch of gladiators. How does image relate to persuasion and influence when you're trying to overcome some of the things that people are in a preconceived way thinking that's what you are when in fact, maybe you're not sales being one of them, perhaps. Um. The hardest thing to accept is that we are all quick to judge. <laughs> we wish we weren't quick to judge, but as humans, we are hardwired to be quick to judge. And we like to organize things. And we like to see the worst in a situation for anybody that is not like us. Mm -hmm. All of that just exists. So when it comes to being able to say, well, you know, 
all that the marketing department does is create pretty pictures under the hope of being able to generate its leads and the leads they give us are, are terrible. And the marketing's belief of the sales team is they're out there running around entertaining clients and swiping the expense accounts and, and getting paid the big bucks and showing up in this environment when we created the brand and the work for them to be able to do. And products are like, well, geez, if if the product wasn't anywhere near good enough, like like all of this noise and crescendo that they're making and what they're getting paid for would be nothing without us. What you got is a broken team Mm. because everybody's looking at everybody else's role on the field of play as being less important than theirs and not respecting the responsibility that lives in that other person's role within a team. So how do you break from that? is you understand that people are quick to judge. You understand that people want to put people in boxes and that people's preconceptions about what other people in the division are aren't going to go away. Like the reason somebody decided to work in product and not in sales because their preconception of what being a salesperson didn't fit their value system. Mm-hmm. The reason that somebody wanted to work in marketing and not be involved in product creation, HR, customer service, et cetera, is because their belief system is hardwired to the fact that when they do this, they are a better version of themselves than if they are that. This is more true to them. So instead of trying to fight against it, lean into it. The hmm. easiest metaphor that I can bring towards this is, have you ever seen the the movie with Eminem, 8 Mile? Of course. Detroit, love it. Detroit, love it. If it's a movie you haven't seen listening into this, I think it provides one of the greatest leadership and sales lessons that is ever known to man that rarely gets labeled. There's a rap battle scene in that movie <laughs> where Eminem is so fearful he's going to get trashed by a ton of bad news that is very, very open in the public domain. It is part of his life story. He's not looking to pretend it wasn't true. He is not wishing that it was different in his life, but he's aware that it could be a threat towards him. And instead of allowing the other person to trash talk him, he labels all the bad news himself in his version of the rap battle, leaving the other guy lost for words, creating a mic drop moment, goes on to be able to win the crowd, to be able to create a culture of acceptance where actually people's adversaries could become their allies. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that should happen in these environments when organizations are looking at other parts of the business and being quick to judge as to why somebody is less than (laughs) what leaders should be able to do is to call out all of the things that other departments are thinking about other departments, stick it all on the table and label it as true, but well-packaged truth, not worse than truth version that is actually being presented right now. Then we can get acceptance towards the role that everybody plays in the team. Then we can find respect for the role that everybody plays in the team. And then that creates a culture of together because everybody looks at other people's roles and says, I don't want to do that, but I need somebody to do it. And I'm glad it's not me. So if uh, if Slim Shady is inside an organization as an individual contributor, let's say, and <laughs> has a great idea, but knows that there's a hierarchy of manager, director, VP, executive, what does the what does Slim Shady you know or Eminem have to do? But the flip side is, what type of I guess cultural attributes need to be put in place by said senior leaders so that this sort of persuasion and influence and almost openness right can manifest and mm-hmm. create a better experience for both sides? 
Right, let me see what I can do to, to show this. And I know that some folks are listening to this on a podcast, some are watching it on uh, on YouTube, and some are capturing it in the Forbes article. But I'm going to do something that, that's visual here that I don't normally do in a podcast, but I think it would be useful. And even if you're not seeing this right now, I'm going to make it make sense with words. Is any time that you're entering into a conversation that you're looking to influence, you need three ingredients. Three critical ingredients in order to be able to influence with integrity and to, to, to do it in a way that creates a safe space and meaningful outcomes for all that are involved. Now, this could be creating a safe space for your employees to be able to show up, to be able to share best practice and ideas and give people better ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. This could be the conversation you're trying to have with your spouse to be able to change the way that you map out the rest of the year. This could be a complex conversation you're looking to have with a third-party vendor that is not performing the way you'd like them to, or a teammate that's not performing the way right, you'd like. Right. Any moment of influence will benefit from these same three ingredients. The first ingredient is one of curiosity. See, the safest place to start any conversation is from a position of curiosity. I'll explain why in a second. Behind curiosity, we're looking to reach empathy. Love it. And behind empathy, we need courage. See, people think that influence and persuasion is all about being this courageous, gregarious, asking for the things you want in life. The most influential people on the planet are not necessarily the people that you'd see as being most influential because they're not showboating the achievements that they gain from being influential. They're just continuing to be more influential and okay to live in the background. There's a mutual friend of mine by uh, a mutual friend of ours in the name of Tom Webster. Oh, and yes. I remember being at a bar with Tom Webster in Boston and he shared a saying with me that I cannot ever forget, which is the old saying that the second mouse gets the cheese. <laughs> it's a literal thing right it's a literal thing is the first mouse ends with a broken neck but what i love about that phrase is it's the second mouse not the third the fourth the fifth it's not about not being first it's about being second which is actually insanely harder than coming first right when you get into it how do you do that? You show up to a conversation first from a position of curiosity. Why do you start from a position of curiosity? Because curiosity earns you something that is often missing. Context. Mm. So when it comes to being able to create a moment of influence, what you're often looking to be able to do is to insert your content. If you insert content before you've earned context, you made a situation noisier without any moments of clarity. If you can use strategic curiosity to understand somebody else's context before you insert your content, what you did is just create a fair field of play. Mm. So if you're looking for the marketing department to do something differently to support your sales actions, don't show up with your content idea expecting them to get it. Show up with curious questions to understand what they're looking to try and achieve, what the outcomes are that they're looking to be able to create from their current set of circumstances before you look to be able to insert other information. When you remain curious for long enough, you naturally find yourself in this position of empathy. And empathy is like a buzzword right now. I'm finding too few people understand what the word really means. And the, the best definition I've heard for the word empathy comes from a, a, another author, speaker friend, that I think you know too, a guy called John Acuff. Of course, yeah. And John describes em empathy as to care about what the people you care about care about. Yeah, Nice. I can't do better than that, so I'm borrowing John's. But what I mean is when you're curious for long enough, you reach empathy by accident. 
Why? Because you're standing on the same side looking at the same problem. Because empathy is about being relatable. There's a button that exists inside the head of every decision maker in the planet. And it's a button that I call the show me that you know me button. The second you trigger the show me that you know me button is you and them versus it, as opposed to you versus them. Mm. See, quite often we think we're looking to be influential by winning the argument. If you win the argument, that means there's a winner and a loser, which means if you're the winner, the other person feels like a zero sum. zero sum. Nobody wants to be that person. Cultures get broken from that. What we're looking to be able to create is us versus it. The enemy needs to live outside the organization. The enemy needs to live outside of the discussion. That's when we can be influential together. That's why I find it fascinating that we're still using examples of sales brilliance, like the Wolf of Wall Street or Glenn Gary, (laughs) Glenn Ross, et cetera. If you did that in 2023, you would be arrested. It is called stealing. That isn't called influencing. That's called manipulating. And see, when you become truly relatable after being curious enough to understand their context, then the courage is just the next step to drive action. That's the big, bold ask, but it doesn't feel like a big, bold ask at that point. It feels like the natural next step. If you just start asking people to change, asking people to do things differently, asking people to accept your ideas, friction, 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 friction. Start curious until you understand their context. Once you understand their context, you'll find yourself in a position of empathy. In empathy, create relatability so it's you and them versus it. Find a common enemy and then make a big, bold ask that is your invitation to take the next step towards your big idea that's going to help them achieve that. And watch how quickly you can reach alignment and agreement towards this is the right way for us to be able to move in direction. The irony is, in a world that moves as quick as the one that we currently live in, when you slow the process down, you speed the outcome up. And everybody's looking to say, how do I do it faster? How do I do it faster? How do I do it faster? And they live in the friction of argument. We're seeing this in culture and teams everywhere right now in the Western world. Slow it down where we become aligned. There's a common enemy and a confidence that we've considered the full context. Everybody travels forward together. So I know that was a long-winded way of being able to answer your question, but hopefully that just gives some insight to how I would think about creating an environment, a culture where people can show up and influence more freely is start curious till you reach empathy, then have the courage to make big, bold asks. So those are, Phil, the, I guess, the the arbiters, the parameters that feed you to be persuasive that then can result in becoming an influencer, if, I, right. if I get you right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've always said at least that uh, content isn't king. Context is king and queen. Yes. And, and ultimately, what we what I find, though, is there are far too many individuals who believe they've got to regurgitate content to overemphasize on their content, yet not having the ability to understand that context is actually related to your ability to relate to your ability to empathize. And I think that big, bold move of yeah. courage also plays a part in that. Well, and quite literally, like if you if you are looking at another department in your organization and you are judging the fact that what they're doing is wrong, inefficient, or dare I say stupid, have you ever asked the question, why are they doing it that way? And what are they hoping to achieve from the way they're currently doing things? And if you ha- aren't asking questions like that, you're wrong to judge. Mm. Because... They might be on a different mission than the one that you are. They might have a different brief and a different set of objectives. 
they might be being remarkably effective at achieving an outcome that is different to the outcome that you were looking to achieve. So they might not be wrong to be doing what they're doing. They might not be stupid. And I think this is the, the strategically curious position that more leaders should find themselves in, is to understand that in every conversation they go into that they're looking to influence, they have to leave themselves open to be influenced. <laughs> Well, on that note, we could chat for you with you, sorry, for hours, but this has been an absolute pleasure, a masterclass uh, in how we really have to think about our context, our courage, our ability to be creative, obviously, and then have some influence through empathy. Where, Phil, can we find out more about the lovely Phil M. Jones? <laughs> um, I'm pretty easy to find. If you use the M um, when you're searching for Phil M. Jones, you'll find me as opposed to many of the other Phil Joneses out in the world. Uh, PhilMJones.com is primary website. We have another website, exactlywhattosay.com. If you're looking to be able to start a journey of understanding more about my work, this little book, Exactly What to Say, is a short 72-minute read that will give you a flavor of how you can use words to show up with uh, more consciousness around many of life's critical conversations and that you can learn how to win with more efficacy in everyday conversation. Oh, I love it. One of my uh, one of my lines that I jotted down when I wrote or read the book, sorry, I didn't write it, you wrote it. Um, <laughs> and exactly what to say. So this line was really good. Uh, there are two types of people in this world, those who resist change in favor of nostalgia and those who move with the times and create a better future. You, my friend, have always been creating a better future for others. So I wish you best of luck as everything that you do turns to gold. Uh, next time I see you, hopefully it's a bourbon and an old fashioned, of course. Yes, indeed. Everyone, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Leadership Now today with the illustrious and ridiculously awesome human being, Phil M. Jones. Until another time. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you having me on the show.